Oh, thank you so much for your amazing hosting, fatherly and fun this week. You've just been amazing. Let's give it up for Art. Just an incredible. And Becky, thank you so much. And uh, also Jason back there, thank you so much for your kind hospitality. We've so enjoyed this time. And uh, it's been both spacious, um, but also meaningful. We've loved connecting with some of you over meals. And uh, there's just such a quality of uh, Christian here with an amazing spiritual heritage represented here. So it's a real privilege to teach. And uh, we actually drive home tonight, uh, then catch a plane out to St. Louis, where I'm, I'm preaching three times on Sunday. So it's actually been fantastic to uh, have this kind of spacious timetable before a really busy weekend. So thank you so much. A final exhortation in the final chapter of Hebrews. I know that we've jumped over the famous Faith Hall of Fame, um, having talked uh, last night about uh, faith and uh, trust in the Lord, and the night before about Jesus the better high priest. And uh, I, uh, I want us to just read 16 verses in this exhortation, and the, and the writer of the Hebrews um, after having really mined the riches of who Christ is, uh, what He's done, how He has been the fulfillment of the prophets, the fulfillment of the law, uh, the fulfillment of all Abraham saw. Uh, Hebrews says that Abraham saw the gospel in advance and believed in it. And uh, that Christ is the fulfillment of even the best high priest. Um, now he, he lands with some exhortations. And in some ways, it's quite hard to teach the exhortations because it can feel like a laundry list. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And uh, I really hope that I can teach it in a way that doesn't feel like a laundry list. Uh, but, you know, Martin Luther, one of my heroes, certainly faith heroes, says that church history is like a drunk man who falls off a horse, climbs back on the horse, and falls over the other side. And that's true, isn't it? Even in our lives, we, we tend to live in extremes, in reactions. And certainly what he was talking about was the church coming out of Catholicism and legalism discovered the grace of God. They got back on the horse of grace and then very quickly fell over the other side into the, horse of into the ditch of license. And, and you and I often find ourselves falling off the horse of grace into either legalism or license. And that's why it's so important for us to read chunks of Scripture, whole books. Uh, as, as a church, we are really committed to preaching through whole books of the Bible because otherwise you just take your favorite little pet passages that represent your theology and you don't allow yourself ever to be challenged. And I believe good biblical preaching both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And I hope that you felt both comforted by the gospel and just how amazing this gospel is, how deeply loved you are, how tightly held you are by Jesus. But there's also a moment to be afflicted from, from comfort. And the Holy Spirit, through the Word, doesn't do that in a con condemning way at all. He does it in a convicting way where we actually leave with a sense of the wind at our back saying, okay, God, I feel now both the call and also a faith to respond to this higher call. And so I want to talk about the call to grace-based sacrifice. 
a call to grace-based sacrifice. I'm going to read from Hebrews 13, uh, from verse 1 to 16. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, even Germans who need showers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have been benefited, uh, those devoted to them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no last, lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, many people stumble over Christ because of his claims to be the only way to the Father, because of his claims to forgive sin. And yet there are almost as many people that have no problem with Jesus, but have plenty of problem with Christians. They don't stumble over the gospel, they stumble over Christians. They stumble over their hypocrisy. They stumble over lips that confess his name, but actually do not bear fruit in keeping with that confession. And it's very easy to point the finger at those hypocrites out there, but each of us, uh, especially when we read this challenging passage, go, none of us totally live up to the high call to make sacrifices to God. And yet we, we, we know that Boy, there are many, many Christians that are doing real, real damage because of their hard hearts and their lip service to Jesus. And this passage lands with fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. In other words, Jesus wants us to confess His name, but He actually wants our lips to bear fruit in a life that bears resemblance to Him. 
early on uh, pastoring, we had a counselor in our church who was counseling uh, a lady who wasn't actually saved, but she just stumbled over the church and started going to, to counseling, and she was really struggling in her workplace. And uh, she was struggling with a real abusive boss. And this counselor just had compassion and empathy and helped her with the Word of God and helped her with forgiveness. And this lady began to experience a measure of healing and even unpack just something of the grace of God. And after a few months, she eventually said, I'd like to come to your church. I'm not a person of faith, uh, but I'd like to come to your church because I've discovered something of God's grace in my life and healing. And so the counselor came to us and just said, this is amazing. God is at work. Please pray. This lady is coming to church. She's seeking faith, etc. We're all praying. We're all praying. So she comes on Sunday. And after the Sunday service, the counselor comes out and said, how was the service? And she, the lady was just white as a sheet. She said, the service was amazing. But my boss, you know that abusive boss that I've been getting healing from? He's in the church. It was one of those moments where our hearts just broke, saying, oh, God, your gospel is at work in this lady, but actually your people are a stumbling block to your gospel. And, of course, each of us have probably been that at times, but I know as I've spoken to so many of you, there's a real desire to glorify Christ in our midst and not just to confess His name, but actually have lips that bear fruit in a changed life. What, is that, what does that look like? What does that look like? And how, how do we get our, our hearts and minds around the idea of sacrifice? That's what it says here. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I mean, we've, we've heard that Jesus Christ is the better high priest who has made one sacrifice once and for all, not with the blood of goats and rams, but with his own precious blood that has forgiven our sins and cleansed our consciousness, consciences and given us access to the very throne of grace. There are no sacrifices necessary for salvation. Amen? So what kind of sacrifice are we talking about here? It must be some other sacrifice other than making a sacrifice for salvation. And what we find here is that it's actually a sacrifice of worship and gratitude for salvation. That's what the sacrifice is. And I think so often the church has got caught up in a, in a cheap grace, fallen off the side, the, the, the wrong side of the horse, having said, well, there's no sacrifice necessary because Christ has made it once and for all. And then they sort of sink into this real passivity. In fact, this morning on Facebook, a friend of mine called Adam Greer, I shouldn't have told you his name, but he was kind of thinking aloud on, on Facebook, and he says, I have a couple of genuine questions. What would it be like to truly know there isn't one more thing you could ever do for God in order for Him to be pleased with you? He, and then he goes on, he says, how do you think it would feel to just quit, to quit every spiritual discipline you've been convinced is necessary to keep God's attention? You see, that's falling off the horse. There's nothing I need to do to please God, so I'm just going to quit. And that's a false dichotomy. I mean, try that in your marriage. Imagine if I said about my wife, I just know that she loves me no matter what I do. 
She's got such a strong love for me. There's nothing I need to do. So I'm just going to quit. I'm just not going to make an effort anymore. You'd say, you are not a loving husband. Right? And yet in faith, we often get into this kind of what Hans calls easy believerism, what I call cheap grace, where we just say, well, Christ has paid it all. But actually that beautiful hymn, Jesus paid it all, ends all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The sacrifice in this passage, in the concluding passage, is not a sacrifice to earn salvation. It's a sacrifice of praise and gratitude for salvation. Dallas Willard, that great teacher, said this, Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. It's a good one, isn't it? Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. So what does it mean to actually have the grace of God strengthen us to make a sacrifice that praises God for salvation? And what's fascinating here is that in the midst of all these concluding exhortations, he actually says, do not be led away by diverse strange teachings, actually for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I think very often we have a very skinny definition of grace. That grace is what saves me, not by my own merit, but by the righteousness of Christ. It is absolutely that, but it's more. Titus 2 says, The grace of God that has appeared to all men teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to a righteous life. So grace saves. Grace also teaches. And here, grace strengthens. So what is it to lean into the grace of God, not get into legalism, but to lean into the grace of God and say, Lord, Won't you strengthen my heart by your grace, never to earn your favor, but actually to make a sacrifice of praise and gratitude for this amazing salvation? What would that look like? And how could we keep our joy? How could we not get into striving? How could we not get grumpy with that? We're going to try and look at that. And we're going to look at five aspects of the way that the grace of God strengthens us to honor God and sacrifice. And the first is this, that the grace of God strengthens us to make the sacrifice of living as sojourners. Living as sojourners. Sojourner is another name for a foreigner or an exile. And that's one of the major themes of this this letter is that the heroes of faith lived as strangers and exiles in their countries. Why, it says, because they were looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. They were looking for the heavenly city. It's a hard thing in some ways to get our heads around this, but the writer really wants the hearers to really try and wrestle to get their heads around what it is to live as sojourners in this world. He says this, verse 13, sorry, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. 
big idea here is that Christ was crucified in Golgotha, which was a rubbish heap. It was outside the gate. Basically, it was the place where you threw discarded things and people that had no value. That's where Christ was crucified. He wasn't anointed as the high priest in the temple or crowned as the king in the palace. He was crucified between two criminals outside the gate. And there's there's hard news here for us. We've got to wrestle with this by grace. It's this, that Christ will give you eternal riches. His gospel will adopt, will redeem, will reconcile will sanctify, but actually the culture, the city that you live in that's passing away will not necessarily place value on the riches of Christ. And coming to Christ does not mean that you get to sit at the cool kids' table. Coming to Christ actually means that we go outside the city and bear the reproach of Christ. I wish when I'd first heard the gospel that the person had told me to count the cost of bearing the reproach of Christ. Doesn't mean that you can't be successful. Doesn't mean that you can't be effective. But it does sometimes mean that you are ostracized, that you are passed over in promotion, that you might be by your friends and family teased. Sometimes you might have to give up a promotion because you're standing by Christian ethics. There's a sense in which you bear the reproach of Christ. You might say to your friends in the city you live, I've been forgiven of my sin. I've found the truth. Jesus is my Savior. And the city might say, what is sin? What is truth? We don't believe we need saving. Get lost. There's that reality. Each one of us that have followed Christ have experienced that kind of rejection at times. And that's hard to not be part of the popular crowd all the time. Some of you I know have felt rejection from your own family. It doesn't mean that we look at our cities, the cities where we live, like they're the enemy. Doesn't mean that we Bible bash everyone. Doesn't mean that we're jerks. Doesn't mean that we live as victims. It does mean that we count the cost that we will not always feel totally at home. We will feel like sojourners. We will feel at times homeless. And that's okay. I love this city, the city that we live in. I love the nation that we call to. I am a citizen. I am a patriot. But there are times when I feel homeless. Being South African actually means that I have dual citizenship. When we were sworn in as citizens of the USA, we actually had to choose America over South Africa. We still kept our South African passports, but there was this hard moment where they said, if America goes to war against South Africa, you need to join America. And my wife and I looked at each other and went, whoa, this is a big deal. We hold dual citizenship, but we actually had to make a priority of this nation. In a similar but bigger sense, each one of us as Christians hold dual citizenship. The country that we belong to and the country in heaven. And actually there's a moment in which our king says, 
Where is your priority? You can love your nation. You can be a patriot. But actually, this is the city, the country that is passing. Are you longing, like the heroes of faith, for the lasting city and the lasting country? And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because we're raised to love our country, but sometimes that can get in the way of our love for the kingdom. So to live as sojourners requires a sacrifice. I want us just to press pause here because I've got five points and I'm going to be quicker on the others. But there's this fascinating letter called the letter to Diognetus. Any of you read it? Uh, Justin Martyr, one of those early church fathers, made reference to it. It's dated around A.D. 133. And it's, uh, it's thought that it's from Apollos, although it's not sure. Uh, the author of the letter just calls himself Mathetes, which means a Greek disciple. So people think it might be Apollos, but it's written to Diognetus, uh, who seemingly was Ro- a, a Roman, just a, a Gentile, and Diognetus was asking questions about Christians in the first century AD or second century. So this is not the Word of God. This is alongside or under the Word of God, but it's history. It's helpful. And I want us to get it up on the screen. Is it up on the screen, Josh? Can we get it up? Because there's a little excerpt. It's quite long. There's a little excerpt in which Mathetes actually describes the early Christians. So he's explaining Christians to a non-Christian seeker. And he says this, Christians live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. Isn't that beautiful? They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. It's just pause there. Let me ask you, what jumps out to you about this description of the early Christians? He's, he's really describing to Diognetus how distinct they are. The fact that they are resident, but they actually are foreign. They're not just the same as pagan Rome. What jumps out to you about these Christians? Yes. What it refers to is that uh, early Rome, paganism, if there was a child that was born with defects, and often girls, because uh, Romans didn't want too many girls, they would discard them on the trash heap. And uh, the early church would go and pick them up and adopt them. So the gospel of adoption was at work very early because of their belief in the sanctity of life. Uh, Roman paganism didn't believe in that, so they discarded. And uh, so this was a distinctive. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> amazing. What else? Yes. So the, every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like the land of strangers. Um, it's the thought of nothing here is permanent, and I have no community, no 
year. And it seems like, and, and we know this in, ter- in terms of the early church and the growth of the gospel in the nations, they really took Jesus' great commission seriously. And so they were always leaving their homeland to take the gospel to other lands. Yeah. Anything else that jumps? Yes. That is so true. That is so true. Yes. I'm going to pick up on that now under hospitality and sexual uh, purity. But that is a stunning, stunning description. A common table but not a common bed. And it was said that Roman paganism had exactly the opposite. They had a common bed. Roman orgies were very, very common, but they were actually very closed in terms of hospitality. Fascinating. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. And isn't this a beautiful, it's a truth intention, isn't it? That they loved their city. I mean, they were the people that went and picked up discarded babies and adopted them. They were good news for their cities. And yet they didn't live there as if this was my true home. They did that because they were looking to a lasting city. And so this is a call for the church to be what Jesus called us, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Being a sojourner doesn't mean you hang out just with Christians and have your little monastery. Being a sojourner means we are engaged in the very life of the city, but we do it as resident aliens. We live in the city, we follow the rhythms of the city, but actually we do not have the spirit of the city. I want to encourage you that actually the church you are part of is called to be a city that's a different city. It's a lasting city, a glimpse of the heavenly city in view of the city that is passing. We, um, I'm not actually going to give that, that example because we just do not have time. Living to bless the city with a different spirit in the city. I want to just quickly boast about another pastor in the city, a man called uh, Doug, who has pastored longer than I have. And this man was the police chaplain in Brea for many years and uh, was really instrumental in uh, helping during COVID to do this thing called Feed Brea, where 10 churches fed 14,000 families. And this guy, he's a good friend, and he just an absolutely amazing citizen of his city. And uh, two weeks ago, I got a phone call from our city in Brea because one of their city managers had died, and Doug was asked to do the funeral. And this guy from the city, employee from the city, says, I don't know what to do because Doug, there's, there's always a little honorarium for the, for the pastor that does the memorial, and he just won't accept it. So I don't know what to do. What do I do with this money? And I was just like, this is awesome. 
So I just said, why don't you just give it to the Feed Brea program that we've got? He was like, okay, that's absolutely fine. But I'm just like, isn't this an amazing problem that they are phoning us saying, that pastor, you know, the stuff that gets front page news is this pastor fell and that pastor took money and that pastor, you know, has lost his theology. This stuff never gets front page news, but this is what it is for the church to be a lasting city in view of a passing city, living as sojourners. And I'm sure many of you have stories like that. So that's the first exhortation, that we live as sojourners. Secondly, that we to practice hospitality. I so loved your story. I was just like, yes, I'm going to preach this. You're already preaching on hospitality, giving showers to people that are picking up litter around the lake. But it begins, these first three verses, I'm jumping back, uh, to this call to hospitality, let brotherly love continue. So this is now a call to love the family of God. And this sounds innocuous. Let brotherly love continue. Of course, we must love the family of God. This is written to a Jewish group of believers where they are being called in view of the grace of God to treat Gentiles like brothers and sisters, like the family of God. In other words, what was actually happening is the gospel of grace was being applied to their cultural and racial prejudice. These, weren't, these were unclean people. But actually, no, let brotherly love continue to all of the family of God. Have these people over for dinner. Treat them like they are your brothers and sisters. That's not easy. But I want to say the world, a divided world is looking for a united church, united by the gospel in its diversity, across cultural lines, across generational lines, across political lines. I'm always amazed at the team that Jesus gathered, his first church, his 12 disciples. I always go, Jesus, I mean, you weren't great at picking a team. You had a crooked accountant. Then you had a tax collector who was a puppet of the Roman government. And around the same table, you had Simon the Zealot, who was a revolutionary trying to overthrow the Roman government. How did Matthew and Simon get on? Not very well, apart from the gospel. But they found a unity in Christ that was deeper and stronger and more enduring than their cultural or political leanings. That challenges me, doesn't it? Does it challenge you? Let brotherly love continue. Hospitality is love of strangers. And so there's this call and exhortation to love the strangers in the family of God, in the church, but then goes on to say, actually to strangers outside of the church, to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's a mysterious little promise, isn't it? And we know that that's what happened with Abraham in Genesis 18. He entertained someone, he brought in a stranger, and it was actually an angel. And I know that each of us have had these moments where we have been willing to be inconvenienced. We've opened our front door, opened our table to people that are not like us. They're not people that we would naturally want to hang around with. And they might not be literal angelic beings, but we have felt visited by God in powerful ways. Hospitality is a secret weapon of the gospel. Can we take seriously this exhortation to hospitality? I grew up in a family 
that every single Thursday was community dinner. Uh, and my parents just practiced hospitality amazingly. And all these waifs and strays would, would gather. And I actually didn't like it growing up. It felt uncomfortable. It was a bring and share potluck meal. And the kind of stuff they brought was often not what I wanted to eat. And often it was really poor people. I remember there was this one guy called Cliffy Dan, and he was a hippie, kind of almost homeless. And my mom and dad had this rule, you have to bring something, just bring something. And honestly, and I don't mean this in mockery in any way, but all he could afford was dog biscuits. And he brought dog biscuits to the table, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing, etc. But actually there was this guy called Ed Strong who came, and he came as a new Christian, and uh, very quickly, my mom and dad welcomed him in. He, he came from a very broken family, and he actually ended up living with us for two years. I was about 10. He was 20. And what is amazing is that he became an older brother. That I, He was cool. He had pierced ears. He drove a scrambler. He was a musician. And I was like, oh, Christians actually can be cool. But this guy had a prayer life. I mean, he was a plumber. He... He'd, He'd end his day of work, close his bedroom door, and i just hear him worshiping and praying for an hour at the end of every day. And something gripped my heart about, man, actually, real men can follow Jesus. Not that my father was not a real man, but he was a very different, he's like a mechanical engineer kind of guy. And now suddenly I'm like, this guy, I can copy this guy. The amazing thing is, 20 years later, Ronell and I led a church for five years, and handed it over to Ed Strong to be led. It's just amazing the, what God did just through my parents opening up their door. Was he an angel? No. But somehow heaven visited. And I, wanna, I, I just want to encourage you, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether your kids have moved out, whatever it is, have a conversation about what it is to open your door to strangers. I believe one of the reasons why Americans are not that good at hospitality, now that's a big generalization, but the Germans said it, right? And some are great. You go to some states and cities, very hospitable, but very often I feel like we feel we've got to put our best foot forward and we've got to have the whole roast dinner. And I would say mac and cheese once a week is better than roast beef once a month. There are many people that are not needing you to put out the silver cutlery. They actually just want family. They want normalcy. They don't want a sermon. They want to be part of a family. And people that we've opened our house to, so often they, they haven't remarked about the food. They've said, it's amazing how you and Ronell are just normal. Like you'll even argue and then you'll forgive each other and repent. And we've never seen that ever in our, in, in our lives. We've never seen a functional family argue and fight and then repent and kiss and make up. We've just never seen that ever. You can so underestimate people's desperate desire for normal family. Practice hospitality. And then there's this little addition to those. Practice hospitality not just to strangers, not just to the people of God, but also to those who are mistreated and are in prison. Now, this would seem that this was talking primarily about those who were persecuted for the gospel and in prison, but it could certainly include those who were incarcerated for crime. Just those that tend to be forgotten, those on the margins, practice hospitality to them. 
in case you feel like, oh, Alan, this is getting, starting to get like really heavy and I'm starting to feel like all hot under the collar and it's too much. Why are we to practice hospitality? Actually, as a response to the gospel that Christ practiced the greatest hospitality to us. Christ left his home in heaven to welcome us as brothers and sisters. Christ was forsaken by his Father on the cross. He was orphaned, as it were, that you and I might be adopted. As we catch the gospel of adoption and confess the gospel of adoption, let it turn into a fruit of a life whose doors are open. They have a common table, but not a common bed. And that takes me to the third one, that we maintain covenantal sexuality. Let the marriage bed be, let marriage be honored by all. That's what it says. And keep the marriage bed pure, verse 2 and 4, for God will judge the sexually immoral. So the early church shared a common table, but not a common bed. In other words, hear me out, they were generous with their finances and their homes, but they were stingy with their bodies. Generous with their finances, stingy with their bodies. I think our culture is the opposite. We have a common bed, not a common table. Stingy with our finances, generous with our bodies. And the Lord calls us to be distinct. And there's a sacrifice to that, isn't there? There's a sacrifice to that. To live with an open front door and a closed bedroom door. But this is what makes us distinct. And what's really clear here, this is a whole series in and of itself, but that God gives the conditions of the gift of sex, and it is the marriage bed. That sexual intimacy is to take place between a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. And we know our culture screams, we want the bed without the marriage. We want chemistry, sexual intimacy, without covenant. But, you know, almost the only law our culture has about sex is it must be consensual. As long as it's consensual, anything goes. But God is saying, no, this is my gift. It's a beautiful gift. God is not Victorian. You just look at the Song of Songs. God created sexual pleasure, but on His conditions... He said it must happen within covenant between a man and a woman. Consent is not enough. And it is a sacrifice to live this way. Amen? It is a sacrifice. And we know that the blood of Christ is available when we mess up and don't live according to God's design. Absolutely. The grace of God forgives us. But the grace of God also teaches us to live by God's design. And our sacrifice in living according to God's design is a sacrifice that pleases God. It's a battle that by God's grace we can be strengthened to make the sacrifice. Oh, I wish I could say more. But we must see this as one of the exhortations of Scripture. And then fourth, 
Verse 5, it says this, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's an exhortation to love Jesus more than money. Wow, Alan, you're really going out on a high here. Talking about sex and money and then jumping into the car. I am not doing this to be controversial, and I am aware I am not your pastor, but this is the Word of God. I'm just trying not to taint it and not to tone it down, but just to go, actually, what is it to look at the Word of God and say, there is grace for us to be strengthened to live this way. And money is not the problem. Let me say this. I've had no money, and I've had money. And having money is better. It sure is. I'm not a prosperity preacher, but I do believe in the blessing of God. And when you arrive in a country, uh, my father always taught us to steward money well. And we come from a family that's always bought rental properties. And Renelle and I had three rental properties before we came here. And we sold them turned our, our rands into dollars, 12 to 1 or whatever it was, arrived with our shekels and couldn't afford to buy a house. It was not pleasant. I don't want to ever romanticize poverty. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I do not believe in the poverty gospel either. And I actually believe God gives us power and grace to create wealth. He blesses us so that we can be a blessing. And actually over time, God has really blessed us so that Ten years in, we were able to buy a cheap house, start to pay it off. We built an Airbnb in our backyard. That became a cash cow. Renelle runs this Airbnb uh, thing. And then it did so well, we were able to buy a second Airbnb. So we actually have two passive incomes. So none, some of you are like judging me, saying, oh, he is a prosperity guy. No, God just helped us to be wise with our money. Our mortgage is very low, to total mortgage very low. But we have passive income. And honestly, God has helped us as immigrants starting again. God has blessed us. What I'm going to say comes from that background. I believe in the blessing of God. The problem is not money. The problem is the love of money. And that's why it says, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Ooh, contentment. First Timothy says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We know our culture is shouting discontentment at us. Whatever I have, I want something else. So in the words of Rick Warren, we buy things we can't afford with money we don't have to impress people who don't care. We live in this hamster's wheel of discontentment that creates debt. And so there is this call to contentment, to, to gratitude. Thank you for what I have. That doesn't mean that you don't ever want more just means that you're thankful for what you have. That's a powerful thing. And I want to say, the world doesn't understand contentment because they are trying to justify themselves by what they have. The church, the city in front of the city, should scream contentment. We have deeper riches than these passing riches. The problem is not money, it's love of money. 
In other words, there's something about money that wants to have a love affair with you. And that's why it says, keep yourself free from the love of money because the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. One of the ways that I've tried to keep myself free from the love of money is that I've come to realize that money is a fickle lover. It comes and goes. And the moment you, you rely on it, something breaks. The, the moment you just think, oh man, we just got margins, we're really comfortable, something breaks or some bill comes or suddenly your kid has to go to college or whatever it is. And you go, oh my gosh, money is not a faithful lover. It's a fickle lover. The way that we keep ourselves free from the love of money is actually by loving Jesus with our money. By investing in His kingdom and His work. I, I find every time we tithe, every time we give towards the Lord's work, it's not only a sense of like, oh, this is good. I'm worshiping you with my wallet, Jesus. There's also a sense in which I am breaking up with money as a lover. And I'm saying, money, I need you, but I don't serve you. I love Jesus. And that is a call. That is a call. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Final one. Final one. And then we're going to land. Value character over charisma in leaders. Verse 7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the final exhortation. So we've talked about living as a sojourner. We've talked about practicing hospitality. We've talked about covenantal faithfulness in sexual morality. We've talking, talked about loving Jesus more than money. This one, I believe, is so key in the church. This is what makes us distinct from the world. And, and there's a sacrifice, just like there's a sacrifice in loving God with our money, but it pleases God. It's a pleasing sacrifice. There is a sacrifice when we value character over charisma in leaders. I used to read this verse 7 Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever as like a promise. It is a promise. It's a beautiful thing that actually, and we talked about this last, last night, that in a changing world, Jesus is the same. He's an anchor for our soul. He's stable. He's unmoved. That's amazing. Have the promise stuck on your fridge. It's an amazing thing. But it's actually talking about leadership. In other words, it's saying for leaders who follow Jesus, particularly leaders in God's church, they need to have a consistency. Never exactly the same as Jesus. I mean, who can be as stable as Jesus? But actually, leaders need to be consistent. The same yesterday, today, perhaps not forever. But leaders in God's church, people should not be wondering, which kind of leader am I going to get today? Am I going to get the happy leader, the grumpy leader? Am I going to get the faithful leader or the cynical leader? And I'm talking about leaders in the family, leaders in marriage, leaders in business, leaders in the church. Character and consistency is what God wants over charisma. We are so enamored 
with gifting and knowledge and personality that fills the room. And that's great. I mean, people often join churches because of a charismatic leader. Able, capable. But you know what? It's character and consistency that actually builds churches and makes disciples. And I want to just exhort us both in our own lives, because there's many leaders here, but also in terms of the leaders we follow. Look for leaders that have godly, consistent character, not just leaders who are gifted and capable. So absolutely vital. Don't be mesmerized like the rest of the world just by people who are full of charisma. And if you are a leader, have a team around you who is able to speak honestly when you are inconsistent. Mm, That's hard. I've tried to build in that way. I lead our team, but there are moments, you know, about three months ago, one of the members on my team just said, Alan, you work too hard, and you're always tired, and you don't know how to say no. Now, in some ways, you can say, well, that's a compliment. But actually, it's not, it's not great. Because very often, I've got my fingers in things that I don't need to. And so the team is helping me to actually step back, to rest, to be refreshed. Are you in a team that can speak to you as a leader? And are you honoring Jesus by being consistent? Jesus wants humble leaders who are consistent. You know, gifting, God is not impressed by gifting. He gave you your gifting. What impresses God, what blesses God, is character. That's the sacrifice that blesses His name. So let's bring our lives to Him in view of His great mercy, in view of His great kindness, never bringing a sacrifice for salvation, for approval, but bringing a sacrifice to honor Jesus. Let's bring our lives to Him in worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for these concluding statements. These statements, Lord, are hard. They're challenging. But we thank You that there is grace. There's grace even today. And so I pray that You would strengthen our hearts by grace. I pray, Lord, even as we looked at that letter to Diognetus, that you would empower us to have a common table, hospitality, but an uncommon bed. I pray that you would empower us to love you, Jesus, more than money. We thank you that there is forgiveness when we have fallen in love with money. Thank you that you're able to set us free. Thank you that you are raising up leaders who look like you. Lord, the, the church has been so decimated by leaders that have charisma but not character. And we ask that you would pour out your grace on us, that we would be the kinds of leader that develops godly character for your glory and the good of others. I just want to thank you for these people that have been such willing hearers. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.